Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this month's UK Roundtable, we discuss how the UK is managing its political crisis and what UK business needs to focus on to stay ahead. With Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Michael Hartig, Head of Specialist Teams Business Banking, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. And we are back to one of our roundtables on all things UK. So I've got a lot to ask our virtual table of talent. Um, and, and this week I'm joined by Will, who is our, our BUK CIO. And, and I know uh, regular listeners know Will well. We also have Olivia Gleeson, who is our politics guru. And of course, she's really had nothing to do for the last few days, Boring but twiddle her thumbs, waiting for, <laughs> for some kind of white smoke to appear. And at time of podcast, or, unless it's changed in the last 30 seconds, I don't think it has. But, but this, this podcast could, could very much get uh, out of date quickly. So we might rush through it. But also to add even more ballast is Michael, who's joining us from the Business Bank, and he is connected to all sorts of really interesting companies and industries. And so we thought we'd tap his brain to, to share, share a little bit about what's going on in, in the world of business and especially for, for some of those sectors. So firstly, hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining. Hello, Nikki. Hi, Nikki. So, Will, why don't we... Get started with markets, which, which frankly, markets themselves have not been dull, have they? In fact, so much so, I was I was amazed to hear uh, you and Phil having an emergency podcast, uh, which was very timely, given the huge swings we saw in markets this week. So maybe you could share a bit with the listeners today. How have things shaped up? Have have they settled down at all? Well, Nikki, first things first. I mean, they're never boring to losers like me. But <laughs> this this last few weeks, they have been a bit more interesting for the wider, you know, normal people. Uh, have they settled down a bit? Uh, sort of. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, the market tumble dryer is quite done with this yet. The fact is um, that we're at a pretty fascinating juncture for the for the world economy, for markets and everything. So, you know, earlier uh, this week, sort of midweek, we had the chief US central banker. I know we're focusing on the UK, but this is kind of will set you the context, I think. Uh, the chief US central banker, Jay Powell, confirming that this is going to be a year characterized by the Federal Reserve getting pretty busy trying to you know, haul inflation, uh, have inflationary pressures back to uh, back to the target. Now, interest rates are going to rise and the kind of economic guardrails provided by that massive program of quantitative easing will be lowered a bit. Now, uh, just to give you, I try and sort of set the context. I'm going to reuse a partially accurate analogy for want of a better one. So do forgive me, but imagine the economy as a car, like all cars, the economy has a sort of, you know, a perfect speed of travel where demand and supply is in, you know, perfect equilibrium, the engine humming along nicely. You know, central bankers, if you think about it, you know, in this analogy, they have some influence over the brake and the accelerator pedals uh, through the mix of base rates, guidance, QE, credibility. And with these tools, they are always trying to get the car to travel at that optimum speed. If it goes too slow, it stalls, recession, too fast, and you get inflation or engine overheating and smoke streaming out of the 
the, you know, the, the, the proverbial, the metaphorical bonnet. Now, the problems are legion. And the main one is that unlike a car, uh, the optimal speed of travel for the economy is A, unobservable, and B, always changing, thanks to kind of shifts in the productivity of the workforce and all sorts of other other factors. But right now, you know, and this goes for the UK too, we've got the accelerator right on the floor, even as smoke is streaming out of the bonnet, you know, that excess inflation. And like I say, that's true in the UK. So hence, central banks are trying to warn us that having been sitting on the accelerator for the last couple of years, we're about to find out what the brakes look like a little bit. It's pretty welcome from a kind of economics perspective, but obviously this takes some gymnastics from markets to get used to because it's been a long time since we've really seen it. Yeah, and I, I do like a like an analogy. It's it's super helpful. <laughs> Even to... a poor one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you talk there about some of the levers that that can and, and might be pulled. But what does that mean as far as our views on the UK economy? Have we changed our, our views in the near term? Yeah, well, I mean, with the UK, one of the concerns, uh, to flog the analogy well beyond its death, is that the engine has got quite a bit smaller. So that optimal speed of travel has fallen. Now, that's not just the UK, it's happened elsewhere. But I think it's particularly difficult to read at the moment because of various pandemic-related distortions. Now, you know, the good news is that the very timely kind of data, you know, like restaurant bookings, uh, geolocation data, they they have brightened a little bit in the last week as, you know, as we move beyond uh, or seem to be moving beyond the hit from Omicron. But more than most major economies out there at the moment, I think the UK has quite a complicated outlook. Betting down Brexit is part of that. Now, as you know, I'm still one of those that thinks the UK has got plenty going for it in the long term, you know, credible institutions, quality workforce, some attractive specialisms, a still highly com- globally competitive capital city, et cetera, et cetera. But nearer term, the Bank of England is one, uh, is among, you know, those UK policymakers with a pretty wobbly tightrope to walk. I think. Okay. And we're sort of itching to hear from Olivia as well, <laughs> yeah, but just delay. from a market land perspective. Are investors, other than, you know, perhaps watching Twitter for, for, for any updates out of curiosity, are investors really paying much attention to what's going on in Westminster? Does it, does it make a huge amount of difference? No. Not really. I don't think so. I mean, not, not at the moment. I mean, it's really interesting. But conservative leadership contests have not been something to trigger fight or flight mode in capital markets in recent memory, if one happens, of course. So for the moment, no, that may change. Depends who the, there is a leadership contest, who, who puts themselves up. I guess there may be some, uh, some shocks there, but not, 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 not right now. No, I wouldn't say. Okay. So Olivia, what's happening as we speak? Where are we? Well, I feel like it's going to be a bit of a letdown. I think, you know, obviously I, I spoke to you uh, last week on the podcast and I did sort of talk about w- what we'd hope would be an imminent publication of uh, Sue Gray's report in sort of the Downing Street Partygate scandal. But, you know, unfortunately, uh, we're still in a bit of a holding pattern unless, as you say, something's published whilst recording. And I am sort of, you know, refreshing BBC News avidly. But, you know, I, I did run through the genesis of the report on last week's podcast. So yeah. I won't repeat, won't repeat that. But I think what I can say is, you know, obviously the Met Police have decided to sort of launch a formal probe into any alleged uh, law breaking. And that really has scuppered, as we understand the imminent publication of Sue Gray's report. Now, we know it's complete. It's sort of, you know, bound, it's copied, but it hasn't yet been sent to the Prime Minister or all been published owing to what we think are sort of legal concerns that publishing some of the findings on matters now being looked by, at by the police could potentially 
prejudice their um, investigation. So I think for the time being, you know, we just have to wait for those issues to be resolved. And it means we're all going to be on the sort of edge of our seats a little bit longer, unfortunately. OK, well, you know, that that's politics. But but when it comes to, to policy, it's an area that I think it would be really helpful to try to understand a bit better around for example, the energy price cap rise, you know, is that something, do you have any updates on what we might expect to see from a policy perspective that, that we can then, as investors, translate into impact on economy or sectoral positioning, for example? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, we're sort of all in the bubble of politics glued to our news screens. We sort of forget the sorts of policy going on. We don't forget Ukraine. I'm not here to talk about that yet, but obviously that's a big issue yeah. uh, coming down the horizon. But I think, you know, the energy policy that you touched on specifically is actually, you know, pretty wrapped up in the politics at the moment as well. So we definitely can, you know, can and should be talking about that. And I think when I was on the podcast, you know, last week, I was talking about some of MPs sort of waiting on putting in those letters of low confidence, depending on the outcome of the grade report. But what that sort of vacuum has, you know, created all that time, I should say, it sort of gives number 10 a little bit more time, bit of an opportunity to have conversations with some of those back, you know, disgruntled backbenchers to say, you know, what could we do to regain your support in Boris Johnson? You know, are there any policies, you know, on your wish list, uh, so to speak? And what we understand is, you know, the cost of living is coming up front and centre through those conversations. Now, government have said that they are looking at this. You know, obviously, we all know the energy price cap is going to rise from April, sort of worsening that that cost of living crisis. But government haven't made a decision on that. And in part, that's because, you know, they've been very distracted by the leadership issues that we've been talking about. But they also, you know, they they haven't agreed on, on what that package of support could look like. Now, we think, you know, that their current consideration is on the lines of sort of quite targeted support at those most vulnerable uh, members of society. But backbenchers are increasingly pushing for a sort of broader, more significant package, you know, a VAT cut, for example. And, you know, I think the fact that we've got this potential leadership uh, contest sort of on the brink is really playing into that. And that will be very, you know, very consequential, I think, for where government comes out. So we'll have to sort of watch and see on on that one. Sorry, I keep saying watch and see. I think we're constantly on the edge of our seats having to wait, wait for developments, <laughs> yes. don't we? But I think the other thing to sort of call up as part of this, Jacob Rees-Mogg was a bit of a bellwether a few weeks ago when he mentioned the um, national insurance hike. But we also understand that a lot of uh, MPs are telling number 10 that, you know, their vote in Boris Johnson will depend on Boris Johnson becoming, quote, more conservative again. And what they're sort of uh, getting at is things like the national insurance hike. And we know that there's a lot of dissatisfaction there uh, amongst Tory backbenchers about the hike. And it could be that, you know, that that's uh, something that the government have to move on. You know, I, I know they've been on denial this past week saying they're not going to shift from that position. But I think, you know, I would say, uh, you know, don't take that for granted. And we should pay, um, pay attention to that area pretty closely because there could be a potential change of tact, depending on how this sort of next uh, leadership bit goes. I get a sense, Olivia, we're going to need to get you back quite soon because <laughs> this <laughs> is just going to play and play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really helpful. And Michael, turning to you, you're at the sharp end with our sort of business clients um, and customers. I guess given the backdrop we've seen of you know, supply issues with, ex- with, with inflation rising, how is that impacting the businesses that you work with? What, what are you seeing on the front line, so to speak? 
Yeah, absolutely, Nikki. And it's a pretty good observation and challenge, really. I guess the first thing I should point out is the fact that our business community is incredibly resilient. In effect, they are used to challenges, be it in terms of exchange rate or challenges in terms of supply chain, and they have to find a way of adapting. But the things at the moment we're hearing that are top of their mind and issues they are, are, are facing, if we, if we put COVID to one side, are things like uh, cost inflation, and the cost inflation is both in terms of raw materials and the availability of supply, but also the impact then on wages and the ability to hire and retain staff. And they, there's almost a almost as a war for talent at the moment. Staff retention actually, actually features in that as well. There's, there's quite a few changes to society and the way people want to work post post lockdown, post COVID. The supply chain is making sure they can get the right supplies at the right time and the right price. And that's something where people aren't taking for granted anymore. But the other thing they're thinking to the long term now is sustainability. You know, so what do they need to do to position themselves to make sure that they are able to to fulfill the societal obligations in terms of the green agenda? But also sometimes they're supply chains for actually bigger entities who are expecting them to make sure they've got a sustainable supplier, really. So those are the big themes they're working through at the moment. And you mentioned there about wages. And, you know, we, we hear we hear a lot in the press about the sort of, in quotes, great quit. And, and we've sort of seen that mainly in the lower wage sectors. What do you hear from companies? Is, is that, is that a, a situation that, that they're having to, to deal with in, in real time? Yeah, so the, the, the impact on those companies, it's a, it's a double hit because, you know, as you say, in effect, if you work in the care sector, hospitality, hospitality and leisure sector, mm. in that case, in effect, you've got staff that have been impacted, actually, and, and having to self-isolate. So you've got staff that are out of business and you're having to go to agency staff or to try and get staff in. And obviously, and you're paying a premium for that. So you've got that challenge. The bigger challenge, though, is actually in terms of that the staff recruitment and retention. So even when they're paying premiums, they're aren't necessarily the people that want to do some of the jobs we're talking to. And I guess one of the, the bits of evidence we're seeing, which is a, a consequence potentially of the furlough package, is whilst the furlough package actually helped those businesses and those staff in, let's say, hospitality and leisure industry to remain employed by the firm on the basis, in effect, they've now moved on to other jobs. They've moved into other jobs where the hours might be better, the pay might be better, and the perks might be better. So they're not going back necessarily to some of the firms they were furloughed from. And that's a challenge if you're an employer and now because you've got to actually train and recruit new staff in a particular time where over Christmas time, for example, if it was a lot of staff shortages really. So it's something that is very much front of mind actually for the kind of businesses that we work with really in terms of how to get the talent in, how to retain the talent and how do they afford the talent, Nikki? Yeah. And interesting what you say there, Michael, just bringing you back in well, you know, obviously, with those inflation pressures, with, with some of those business concerns that Michael's talking about there, are these the same things that the Bank of England are worrying about and looking to take action against? Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit buzzkill to be worrying about wage rises in kind of lower income sectors, doesn't it? But I mean, I think this is kind of, you know, particularly in some of the jobs that we're talking about, where, you know, a lot of the story has been about the great rudeness, hasn't it? How sort of people have become more antisocial. And, you know, there's some awful stories about how society has treated those that 
serve them coffee and, you know, bring them food and so on. So, but yes, you know, one of the things that will be keeping up central banks around the world, uh, you know, central bankers around the world at night is, you know, the potential for, you know, a wage price spiral where worker pay chases inflation higher. And I'm not just talking about lower income jobs, I'm talking about jobs across the spectrum uh, in what is often seen as an increasingly dangerous spiral. And the 1970s, the experience of the 1970s shared by the US is considered like a really good example of this. In basically, you know, at the moment, the supply and, you know, as Michael said, you know, the supply of workers in the economy seems to be falling well short of the demand for them at the moment. Uh, and that's for a range of reasons. The suspicion is that wage growth is going to continue to be pretty perky as a result. Now, over the very long term, there's a pretty watertight relationship between inflation and wages. However, interestingly, that has fallen away in the last couple of decades for a range of reasons. But part of it is seen as the, uh, you know, the credibility of central banks as active custodians of an inflation target. Uh, what I mean by this is, you know, the promise to raise interest rates and tighten condition, financial conditions where inflation is above that 2% target and the reverse when it is below. And that's key to keeping those expectations anchored and credibility in central banks strong firm. Now, if you want a current illustration, a real-time illustration of what happens when you, you decide that millennia of accumulated monetary understanding is pure hokum, uh, see Turkey, where Mr. Erdogan uh, has captured the central bank and now presides over inflation of 36% year on year at last count. Uh, and that's a PPI of 80%, so producer price inflation of 80%. So it makes any kind of making any kind of economic decisions, if you think about it, whether a consumer or business, incredibly difficult. That's an extreme example, obviously, but it's illustrative of why the central banks, you know, the Bank of England's independence and inflation fighting credibility are really, really mega important factors uh, in all of our economic well-being and central to that. And indeed, that dampened relationship between wages and inflation since the 1990s is keeping inflation expectations under control. Uh, and this is really what is spurring a lot of the central bank action at the moment. The idea that incoming inflation, uh, a good deal of which is related, you know, is related to temporary pandemic associated distortions, which interest rates aren't going to do much about directly, that that will seep more durably uh, into our collective consciousness uh, unless the Bank of England is seen to act. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot of this year. And that's, you know, one of the sort of one of the dangers as we enter into it, because, you know, that the, the central bankers are sort of pulling away the punch bowl and uh, how fast they pull it away. That'll be extremely important in deciding how these economies fare uh, in amongst uh, in amongst this uh, very rather new situation for many of us. Yeah, indeed. And Michael, I mean, Will there spoke about you know, the hospitality sector and you know, some, some of the hardships that some of our compatriots sort of face in dealing with being shorter staffed and supply issues, et cetera, et cetera. But clearly the hospitality sector, given the lockdowns, had one of the biggest blows from any sector in the pandemic. And I know that you and the team have been incredibly active in looking to support that area of the economy and, and the business um, community. Just wonder whether for our listeners you could share any thoughts you have around the characteristics of elements within the hospitality and say leisure businesses that you think will ultimately emerge as the winners, those were the sort of killer propositions that as we get back to some kind of normality, whatever and whenever that is, that perhaps can you see any sense of where the winners will emerge from? Absolutely. It's a, it's a fabulous um, question. Um, it's a fabulous challenge. So uh, the first thing to flag is the fact that actually 
all our bankers remain very close to, to all their clients in this process, really, because the clients are facing challenges, uh, different challenges. But if you look at the hospitality and leisure sector in particular, it's also benefited from a substantial amount of government support, be it rate relief and the VAT reduction. And it was starting to build up a, a sense of momentum. And I guess we saw that when a Plan B was announced in England. And in fact, we saw a distinct drop in footfall in those city centre locations, be it London, be it Manchester, as fewer people travelled to the office. So that was a, a challenge we saw with a Plan B. And the I guess the wider dynamic of that is if... If you look at the sector, there's going to be some winners and losers. So typically city centre hotels that cater for business people and business travellers obviously aren't doing as well as those hotels and facilities in picturesque locations, the lakes, Scotland, the Peak District, in terms of where there's still an element of leisure spend. But I suppose to your question in terms of what does the future model look like, I think the one thing the pandemic has taught us is the fact that leisure is incredibly important to us in terms of that work-life balance we've talked about. And therefore, our leisure spend is going to be more discerning. So as an operator in the sector, you've got to make sure you really understand your, your clients, your markets, and you're building something for them. You can't just build something, take for granted that people are going to spend their, I guess, their leisure power with you anymore. So that's the one thing that we've seen. The kind of examples of that kind of adaptability is we've seen providers, and we've all seen it in on our high street in pubs, restaurants, is the ability to build the takeaways, the, the ability to have outdoor eating, and actually diversifying the way people can order, be it in restaurants or remotely. Also having a well thought through social media strategy, trying to attract a diverse customer base who are wanting to try something new and making sure you retain and recruit the, the right caliber of labor, because there's no point having a great proposition if you've not got a chef in the kitchen or people in front of the house to make sure to make sure you look after those guests. But more importantly, it's about location. So we've seen the out-of-town pubs and restaurants with parking probably prosper better than the ones in city centers. And she's just thinking about that right location. And certainly across um, business banking team, and I think we've got some plans actually later in the year to bring some more guidance out to help our clients across these sectors. So watch the space. Sounds good. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Really, really great insights there. And uh, Will and Olivia, as always, as, as I mentioned, I suspect we, we, we might be coming back to you fairly soon, Olivia, or maybe not, May, maybe in about three years time. Uh, it depends how long, <laughs> how long this ekes out for. But in the meantime, thanks so much. And thank you to our listeners and subscribers. And we'll be back with you either in a week's time or before then, if there is something super exciting to talk about. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.